from the scary studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for a special Halloween episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Think wasps and honeybees are the only insects that sting? On today's show, we'll tell you about a pair of caterpillars that can really put the sting on you. And to make things worse, one of them is really cute. Plus, the common weed that looks like an edible berry but is extremely toxic. Otherwise, it's a fearsome phone call show. Cats and kittens, yes, potential guests are busy hiding indoors. So we will take that heap and help it. Of your telecommunicating questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and formidably freakish frightonation. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, true believers, because it's all coming up faster than you running for help because you touched the wrong baby moth right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. Welcome to a very special Halloween episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Last week, I promised to come up with some scary stories for Halloween, and I found some thanks to people who were writing in with terror emails. What is this? Is it safe? Is it going to hurt me? Um, The answers, by the way, are no and yes, they will. And we'll tell you about three things, seriously, that every gardener needs to know and avoid when we get to a very special question of the week. In the meantime, as many of your frightening phone calls as we can take at 833-727-9588, Janet, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Janet. How you doing? Well, I got a bad case of liriope. Oh, dear. Uh, have you spoken to your physician about that? Oh, where, where are you, Jan? I'm in Williamsburg, Virginia. Oh, okay. Very nice. Uh, real perfect climate down there for gardening. I have got liriope. Somebody told me that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And that stuff is way invasive. Yes. Um, so it's all over the place. Mm. And I need it dead, but I've got bulbs underneath that I don't want to kill. Okay. So you have any ideas for me? Oh, yeah, because nothing I would suggest would kill anything underground. You know, we don't do herbicides here or anything mm-hmm. like that. Now, the problem with this plant, um, like many other really difficult plants like running bamboo is Mm. it grows from an underground rhizome. So so in many ways it's similar to your uh, spring bulbs in that most of the energy is in a root or a tuber or a bulb or a rhizome underground. And those things, Mm. you know, they contain a lot of energy. Um, you know, but the bulbs are still coming up, right? Oh, uh, yeah. 
See, I have found, um, I have a, a big central area in my front yard. And in the spring, we have this big circle. And in the spring, come up tulips and daffodils. And then when their flowers have faded, the hostas take over. And the hostas mm -hmm. are, are thick as battleship steel. And I, I keep wondering, what's, I wish I had x-ray vision so I could see what's going on underground. Are the, are the spring bulbs, uh, are their necks turning this way and that way to try to find that last little <laughs> section of dirt to come up? Uh, but they really do integrate very well, and they get along very well with each other. Are you sure you need to do something? Yeah. Um, just uh, fortunately, a year ago, August, my mom moved to my cul-de-sac. She had been in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And she sees my front yard from her house oh, and how nice. vice versa. Yeah, it's wonderful. And she made it just in time, too. You know, this has been an awful year. Yes. So I want to make sure I have as many flowering things coming up so that she sees gorgeous stuff from her window. Mm -hmm. So this year I have um, another invasive in English ivy oh, all over oh, the little... Oh, oh, oh. That's, oh, even, oh. that's even harder <laughs> to get rid of. Now, the Ivy Society... Um, maintains that it really invasive ivy with the with the real cementy clingers going up the wall and everything, that mm -hmm. that's actually Irish ivy. But uh, I maintain that we've been blamed for everything for centuries. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm, especially if the other side is English, you know. So yeah, you know. the ivy is going to be even more difficult because it has the waxy coating. Um, yeah. Well, I've I've been sticking daffodils in there, mm -hmm. and they're coming up gangbusters. Right. Yeah. And then and then this summer I planted um, zinnia and tithonia all over in there, so my mom got to see pretty flowers. Oh, great! Um, and did you get monarchs on the tithonia? It's been a weird summer. I only got two monarchs okay. all summer. Well, two is and, better than uh, none. Yeah, true, true. Well, uh, two different problems. The ivy, um, the problem is it has a waxy coating, so that defeats mm -hmm. any kind of herbicide, chemical or natural, and it's really hard to use a flame weeder on it because <laughs> it's, so, it's so wet, so to speak. But that would be, mm -hmm. you know, I would urge you to pull it up, especially if it's just getting established. Oh, no. <laughs> no? The ivy's been there it, for a while, too? Yeah. My husband had complained that the lamppost in the yard needed painting. And so, as I said, it was a quicker solution, and I stuck some ivy in there and chicken wire around it, and uh -huh. boom, you know? So it's your, it it's your fault. <laughs> no, it's my son's fault. When he was a teenager and it was his job to mow the lawn, Every time he mowed, he mowed a little farther away and a little so that he would have ivy that didn't need to be mowed. Oh, okay. So next thing you know, we had a whole front yard of ivy. Well, and is your front yard shady? No, not anymore. We lost a big maple tree about 10 years ago. Well, you know, oh, 10 years ago. Okay, yeah, well, it's you been know, a while. Yeah. The, the answer, unfortunately, to both is hard labor. Now, there's two tools that you can use. Um, one of them is called the water 
powered weeder. And as far as Ooh. I as far as if I, I can't know, have flames, that sounds pretty good. Well, we'll get to that. As far as I know, the water-powered weeder is only available from a company called Lee Valley Tools. Um, Valley? Lee Valley, L-E-E. Okay. And what it is is it's a long spike that fits onto your um, your regular garden hose uh, coupling, uh-huh. and it comes down to a sharp point with just a tiny hole in it, and it actually has a trigger. So you jam this thing into the ground, pull the trigger, and it saturates the area that the head is standing next to now. And then, you know, once you've got the weeder in there and you've really saturated it, the rhizomes will be much easier uh, to try to dig out or pull out. Uh, same, like th- same thing with the ivy. As much as you can, attack it at the base but otherwise, yes, then you move to flame, a flame-powered weeder. For instance, mm-hmm. let's say you do a good job with the, uh, what is it, leotrope? Uh, liriope. Liriope, I'm sorry. Uh, you, let's say you do a pretty good job getting the rhizomes out, and then all of a sudden you see little sprouts. Well, that's the perfect thing for the water-powered weeder. Then, uh, no, for, I'm sorry, for the flame weeder. Because then you're still standing up, you've got this shepherd's hook with a small propane bottle on the back end, and you've Mm -hmm. got an igniter, kind of like a trigger, and you just hover over that new growth. And if you Mm -hmm. just keep at it, whenever a new sprout gets up, um, comes above the soil, um, you'll exhaust whatever little root is left behind. You can't exhaust a whole rhizome, but if you just missed a little piece here and there, then mm-hmm. killing the green growth as soon as it comes up will exhaust the root and you, you might be free. But I would, I would just sell my house and move closer to your mother, so, you know. Well, no, she's right across the street and we're in a cul-de-sac, you know. <laughs> well, if, you're, if your daffodils are doing okay in the ivy, I mm-hmm. would say work with the rhizome plant first because that mm-hmm. seems to be your primary complaint. But this really needs to be a warning. Uh, to people out there, once these invasive plants get established, they are difficult as heck to get out of there. Oh, yeah. So I use the uh, the water-powered weeder to get the rhizomes first. Does that go way in the ground or just at the base? Well, that's know, the nice barely- thing is you're, you're kind of like inserting a giant syringe. So mm-hmm. you'll, you'll find your level. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you don't have to be intuitive. You'll, you'll see what level is working best and where the rhizomes are. But mm-hmm. they are impossible to get out of dry soil, but you should be able to do a good job in wet soil. Okay, and the um, about the bulbs underneath, am I going to no. give them the heebie-jeebies? No. Um, All right. You, you, you know, they're not going to like excess water, so I would do this during a dry time. But no, I mm-hmm. mean, you're not using an herbicide or anything. Okay, and a flame waiter near the house? Yeah, sure. That's, oh, it's very yeah. direct. It's 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 like one mm-hmm. of those things that you use to light your grill, the gigantic cigarette okay. lighter kind of thing. Okay. Oh, boy, I wish I would have had that before. I had a bunch of horse nettle I had to get rid of, and that would have been much more fun. Well, see, you're experienced <laughs> at this now. <laughs> All right, you okay, take care I now, to, and good luck. You too. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. 
833-727-9588. Linda, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. How are you today? I am just ducky, thanks for asking. And ducky is so happy to come out and play. Keep his mask on, though. All right. And where is Linda? I'm in Pennington, New Jersey. Okay. And what can we do for Linda in the Garden State? Well, I have a nice perennial garden. It's um, a raised bed about a foot, and it's... Um, kind of uh, tear-shaped with a pagoda tree at the north end of it. So it okay. gets a lot of sun. Mm -hmm. But every spring I have dieback from the winter from some plants, not all, but some. And I was wondering, I don't do anything special in the fall, and I was wondering if I should be doing something to protect what I have. Now, when you say dieback, um, you mean that the plants lose all their leaves, but then do they return in the spring? No, but I'm talking about the ones that die. Die, not just die back, just right. die, die, die. Exactly. Well, uh, you know, how certain are you of your plant selection in the perennials you choose? Are they hardy at, say, I'm going to guess you're a high zone six? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We have a, we're a little bit colder than the area for some reason. Um, I get a little frost sooner than other people. Okay. Are you low, so to speak? Not you personally, um, <laughs> but is, uh, is your landscape I'm, a little lower than the surrounding area? No, it's actually built up because huh. it's a raised bed. But but um, the stuff that dies is usually the newer stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I, I try to replace things. Um, what, has, what I've lost is uh, creeping flocks and uh, lavender and... Candy tuft. Um, sometimes they'll make it one year, but not the second year. But other things have been, you know, around for ten years. Okay. And have no problem. Good. Okay. So lavender could be the key here. Uh, lavender demands uh, dry feet. It likes rocky soil. It likes poor soil. And if that soil is wet a lot of the time, lavender won't make it. Um, we had a call just a couple of weeks ago about a woman who was growing her lavender in a rock wall. And I said I had seen a beautiful, beautiful stretch of lavender growing exactly the same way. Just fill in a little bit of the wall with dirt, stick the lavender in, and it'll always be happy. So is it possible that your plants are being overwatered or that the area doesn't drain well? Um, it's not definitely not overwatered because I hardly ever water it. Good. But, it, but I did fill the raised bed with um, good mushroom soil. Mm -hmm. And so it's not rocky or loose. It's good. It's pretty good soil. Yeah, I've used, uh, I've used uh, aged mushroom soil in the past. When was that? Eight years ago. Okay. I don't, I don't think that that would be... Um, hurting anything now. But the plants that you have lost might prefer, I don't know if you have other areas in the garden that you could improve with a lot of perlite, but the plants that you've lost would probably like a much better draining soil. Um, and again, one thing that strikes me, uh, lavender is not a one-size-fits-all plant. There is Spanish lavender, there's English lavender, uh, there's some other kind. And the names, unfortunately, are kind of tossed around, and you never know exactly what you're getting. But I can tell you that Spanish lavender would always die over winter in New Jersey, whereby English lavender, as long as it had good drainage, should make it through. Okay. 
So my, my, my thought is to um, do a little bit of research, make sure that the plants you're buying are hardy down to zone five. That way you can't lose. And since you're going to be replacing plants, get a big bag of perlite and mix it into the soil where your new plants are going to go. And it's quite possible that that may be all you need to do. Okay, so do you think I need to do anything for over the winter to protect them? Believe it or not, what I'm suggesting is very important for winter protection. Um, people think of mulch and everything like that. Mulch can't really keep plants warm. It only keeps the soil from heaving and frosting. Whereby in the winter time, when there isn't the sunlight and the warmth to evaporate water, and when you get a lot of rain or snow, um, these garden beds can just stay sopping wet for weeks, if not months at a time. And really the best thing you can do is every time you put a new plant in, you know, mix like 25% perlite into that planting hole to really give yourself the drainage that quite honestly seems to be lacking. Okay. All right? All right. Yeah, thanks. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind you that leaves only fall once a year. But if used correctly, they can benefit your garden 365 and 24-7. But don't go gathering up that bounty just yet, because we'll be right back with scary plants and insects and more of your scary phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to a terrifying episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your horrifying host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, did you know that caterpillars, certain species, can sting you? And their stings are incredibly dangerous, sometimes even fatal. And to make things worse, one of them looks really cute. And we'll also warn you about a plant that wants to kill you. But before that, we're going to take more of your fascinating and perhaps fearful phone calls at 833-727-9588. Bruce, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Greetings, Mike, from the Great White North in Toronto. Oh, excellent, excellent. Always nice to hear from our neighbors to the north. Um, oh, Toronto's such a great town, too. I love Toronto and Montreal both. 
so much this morning. Uh, I don't have a question for you, but I had an idea regarding starting seeds and the light required for starting seeds, and I'd like to run it by you and, and see what you think. Absolutely. Go ahead. This is a, a, a topic that is changing almost daily. Well, during this pandemic, like a lot of other people, I've been stuck at home with not much to do, and there is not a YouTube video that I have not seen. One of them that came up was about a gentleman who had a three-car garage that he wanted to use mostly as a workshop, but he did not have enough light. So the video was about him installing what are called deformable LED lights. Now, to picture this, because most people probably have not heard of the term, I had not, picture a ceiling fan that you might have in a bedroom. They look kind of that shape, but they're not six feet in diameter. They're maybe about the size of a dinner plate, a little bit larger, maybe 15 inches. Mm-hmm. Some of them have three arms, some of them have four, and on the end of each arm is what I would call a pad. It's about the size of a large smartphone, and inside each of those pads are many, many LED lights. Each of the pads also is on a hinge that can move at 90 degrees. Hmm. These lights replace an incandescent light bulb, so you just simply unscrew the bulb, screw this in, and you're good to go. Now, for seed starting, you would probably have to go out and get um, a light socket, attach it to a board, a board, and hang it above uh, your lights. They come in varying degrees of intensity from 4,000 lumens and up. And, of course, being a guy, I had to get the biggest, oldest, <laughs> brightest one that's up there, uh, 12,000 lumens. Oh, my goodness. Now, to put this in perspective, when I'm out shopping... Uh, for bulbs for my seed starting unit. I'm looking for lumens in the 24, 2500 range with fluorescent lights. So we're talking a, a huge multiplication factor here. Yes, we are. Now, you don't have to go you know, to that extent, but uh, I check. I use the standard shop lights, uh, which are four, four, two, four T8s in there. Yep. And I did check the other day that they total 5,400 lumens. Mm-hmm. So there's there's the comparison for you. Now that shop light up here in Canada, because our dollar is different, cost me about eighty dollars. Mm-hmm. With it with the tubes, you could probably double that to one hundred and sixty. It's equivalent roughly to about one hundred and twenty-five U.S. dollars. These lights, the light that I got, is less than thirty dollars. No, that's, now I checked. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. The, the price is certainly that way. Uh, I checked a couple of years ago about going to LEDs and just found it cost prohibitive. But this may be a, an inexpensive way for people who are thinking of starting seeds uh, to, uh, to get their lights. I was doing um, a home show um, up in northern Pennsylvania, up in Wilkesboro. And backstage, they had replaced their ceiling lighting with LEDs that were the same size as T8 fluorescents. And I found exactly what you discovered. The intensity of the light was three or four times what the fluorescence must have done. But there was something about the light that wasn't blinding or inappropriate or unpleasant. It seemed to be a much more spread out brightness, if I, if I can try to describe that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't understand when they talk about warmth of lights. Uh, but this thing came in at 6,500K, and I'm really not sure what that means. I've never really gone for uh, the coloration or that other stuff. I'm just 
you know, dirt simple guy. I just went for the biggest lumens that I could find and was really pleased to see that when I went into a big home store, um, there was a great variety of lumens in the same size. And it was on the, that kind of paper sleeve that they come in. So that's all that I did when I, um, when I got my setup going. And my plants have loved it. I, a lot of times I get lazy or I can't find the timer and I just leave them on 24-7. Um, the, the plants want to grow. What did you call these things again? They're called deformable. LED, I guess deformable because it's on the hinge and, and can move. Right. So are, uh, are you talking about two different... You're talking about a fixture, first of all, right, that these things yeah. screw into? They, they screw into a standard light socket. Right. And But you're saying this um, a ceiling fan that you were talking about, this is like a special uh, device to hold these things. No, 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 I'm sorry. The ceiling fan was just to give you a visual picture that it kind of is that shape, but it's much smaller, about the size of a dinner plate. Okay, but that's something that you screw the lights into that has the, uh, the movable uh, hinges. Nope, just screw it into a normal light socket. Oh, okay. If you've got an incandescent light bulb in your ceiling, just take it out, screw this in. Okay, and that's, that's amazing. So what are you going to do this spring? Mike, those uh, shop lights that I have that yeah. I told you were so expensive, I have four of those. Mm. I, I don't know if I want to put any more money into this right now, but I thought maybe if I could give some people an idea, people who had not started growing from seed, that they might find a, a less expensive way to, to get into it. Oh, I think LEDs are the future, clearly. But I'm like you. I also have four fixtures, four tubes each, and I bought like 50 bulbs at the time, <laughs> you know, so it, it's not even worrying about the expense. You know, it's the Minnesota rule. You're not allowed to throw it out until it breaks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also had another thought, because you had a show recently where you once again talked about bringing your pepper plants in for the winter. Yes. And I thought, like, if you were going to use these for your seeds, you'd have to mount that light socket on a board and hang the board just as you would hang your lights. But if you turned that board upside down and bent the, those little pads so that they're straight up and down and hang it between your pepper plants halfway up. I brought my pepper plants in a couple of years ago to try it for the first time. They didn't make it, and I think they just did not get enough light. You've mentioned many times, just raise your lights a couple of inches and you're really losing the effect of the light. But if you could put it halfway up the plant, all of those leaves down at the bottom who weren't getting much from the, the the grow light tubes above are now getting a lot of light. So that's another use that you could possibly make of these. Oh, yeah. And again, the LEDs are the future of seed starting and indoor growing. Um, no doubt about it. All right, Bruce. Well, thank you for the tip. And it's deformable? It is de deformable LEDs. Uh, you will find them on the websites of some of the big box stores. I got mine from that uh, online company that's named after a river. They had... <laughs> They had more uh, options there. Mm -hmm. And I would caution people if, if we've sort of tweaked their interest. Some of these are sold in pairs. And they're, the wording on the ones that are sold in pairs don't tell you. If they say 5,000 lumens, they don't tell you whether it's 5,000 for each of the two or 2,500. So I would assume the worst mm -hmm. is 5,000 for the two. So, uh, you know, buyer beware uh, when you're ordering it. All right. Well, Bruce, uh, thank you for chiming in. Always a pleasure. And um, you have a good day, sir. You as well. Take care now. Bye-bye.
number to call, 833-727-9588. Kelly, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Kelly. How you doing? I'm just great. And How are you? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. Ducky's always happy to come into the show. Where is Kelly great? Uh, I'm from Spotswood, New Jersey. It's near New Brunswick. Oh, okay. You always have to add that, don't you? Yeah, it's real small. <laughs> All right. What can we do for Kelly in the garden state? Um, so I am a relatively new gardener, but um, I was able to identify some problems we had with powdery mildew mm-hmm. last season, um, specifically in my pumpkins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this year, we changed the location of where I grew my pumpkins to um, something that had a little bit more airflow, more sun. Good. Um, I did not have powdery mildew on my primary pumpkin plants. I had powdery mildew on a volunteer pumpkin that came out of my compost pile. Right. Um, my concern is the status of my compost pile. Oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't worry about that at all. Um, You know, when I think back um, for my fellow East Coastians and Mid-Atlanticers about the season that's just over, the first thing I think about is, did I ever have to water? And I think I did once. So it was a, a pretty wet summer. And it seems like you've already isolated the problem, new gardeners especially tend to overplant. They tend to try to shove too many things into one garden bed. And that's totally understandable. Um, but, and you know, if you have a, a kind of a hot and dry season, you might get away with it. But if you get a lot of rain and the airflow's poor, you're gonna get hit with powdery mildew. I think the one that came out of your compost pile, you know, that's just an interesting topic itself. Because I have had squash plants come out of my compost piles. I've had potato plants come out of my compost piles. And you would think that it would be the ultimate growing environment. But I never had really good success with either one of those. Did the, did the pumpkin coming out of your compost survive? Yeah, it didn't do bad. It was a decent size and... Um... It's currently sitting on my porch. Well, you're ahead of me already. Goodbye. No. <laughs> um, um, related to that, though, I also grew um, some cukes out of straw bales, mm-hmm. which did eventually succumb to the powdery mildew. Got rid of all the plant um, from the cucumbers themselves, but the I was going to compost the, the straw bale because it's prime composting material. Is that safe to do? Yeah, I would say so, although I'm not a fan of straw bale gardening because at least according to the books that were written about it a couple seasons ago when it was the hot new trend in gardening, you have to use chemical fertilizer in there um, to keep the plant going. Plus, my bigger problem with it, you have to buy the bales over and over again each season. And as you know, the top of the bale dries out much too quickly where the bottom of the bale, where it's laying on the ground, turns into a a nasty mess um, very quickly, especially in a late season. So I don't think there's any advantage to straw bales that you won't get out of a container or a raised bed that you only have to acquire or build once 
and then you're not paying for, let's face it, I mean, is there any organic straw in the world? <laughs> or, or should we assume that it was grown with a lot of chemical inputs? And I, I assume the other way. And e even just thinking about it, imagining it, I can't see how you could avoid uh, disease in a straw bale. But um, okay. with cucumbers, I don't know how you grew them if you just let them trail over the side of the bale. But cucumbers are one of the plants that benefits the most from trellising um, that people rarely trellis. First, you get that free airflow because you're growing up, and then it's your game to lose. But the cucumbers also tend to be straighter and better defined, um, and they really enjoy uh, being trellised up. So that's one thing you might want to try next year. Now, I don't think you have to worry about leftover disease in, in your plants or your straw bale or anything like that. And sure, now that you got the straw, you should you compost it, but not at the expense of your fall leaves. The fall leaves are gonna have nutrients um, in greater proportion than the straw would. But um, in the future, you know, you know, you learned it already, airflow. Room between plants. There's an old saying in organic gardening that you'll do better with two plants in a raised bed than you will by, you know, overcrowding it with four plants. You'll actually get more fruit. And that's something it takes because, you, you know, you've, you've always got leftover tomato plants, right? Well, I, I can mm -hmm. fit this thing in here and I can fit this <laughs> thing in there. And we should warn people that when you grow pumpkins, you are inviting a 600-pound gorilla into your garden, right? Oh, they go crazy. Yeah. They but, go crazy. And one thing that I got suckered in on, I decided, well, I'm tired of my garden being overrun um, by pumpkins, so I'm going to grow the baby pumpkins, the cute little ones. Well, <laughs> the pumpkins are small, but the vines are the not. Vines the They're same. just as big. <laughs> So give them more airspace, trellis stuff up okay. as best you can, and as soon as you see any kind of, um, of mildew, pull that leaf off. It may seem, okay. it may seem like you're going to defoliate the entire plant, but one of the most interesting things, the more leaves you pull off, the more new leaves the plant is going to grow, and an aggressive grower like pumpkin is always going to outrun the disease. And then if the weather changes and you've removed the, the kind of the source, the, the big infestation, those new leaves um, might stay real nice and good looking. Okay. All right. That's but great advice. Thanks, Mike. Just remember that you should always pull off any discolored leaf, not because it might be diseased, but because then your garden is going to look better than it really is. And it's going to make the neighbors jealous. That's the goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm from Philadelphia. It's not enough to succeed. Somebody else has to lose. Has to lose, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, thank you. Take care. Museum. When people come to see them, they really are a scream. The 
teeth. So get a witch's shawl on, a broomstick you can crawl on. We're gonna pay a call on the Adams family. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind all of you with now less than perfect looking pumpkins that you can absolutely toss them into the compost. But if you live out in the country, any nearby pigs, horses, or chickens would love to dive into that scary looking treat. Just be sure to scrape off any paint and remove the candle wax first. But don't go feeding Porky and Flicka just yet, because we'll be right back with scary stories about caterpillars and poison plants and more of your terrifying phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to a hopefully terrifying episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, which is the Christmas city, not the Halloween city, except for today, because I promised you scary stories about real life, and you're going to get them. And it is vitally important that gardeners and children know to avoid the two insects and the plant I will soon reveal can hurt you bad. In the meantime, a couple more of your hurtful phone calls at 833-727-9588. Edith, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Uh, how are you doing today, Mike? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. How is Edith doing? Whoa, ducky oh. fell. Oh, my God, his mask is off. When there's there's federales at the door. Governor Wolf is going to come take my duck away. How how are you, Edith? Oh, pretty good. And where is Edith pretty good? I'm in Robinson Township, just south of Reading. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. What can we do for Edith in um, right near Reading, PA, home of my favorite minor league ball club, the, the Reading oh, yeah. Phillies? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have a question concerning the Colorado blue spruces in the area. They're all dead. Oh, that's not good. Every, every one I've seen, and I was just wondering if it was environmental, insect, disease. Are They're these, all bad. Are these uh, trees growing on different landscapes, or are they out in the wild? Most of them are just in people's yards. You know how you see Colorado blue spruce and people, you can spot mm-hmm. them a mile away because of their color, but they're all dead. Yeah. Um, back, back in the day when, when I was a younger man, I would get a live Christmas tree with its, uh, with its roots all bold and burlap. Yep. 
And after the, I, we would decorate it outside because they really don't do well when you bring them in and out. Nope. And we decorated it outside. Then my friends and I came over and planted it. And thank goodness I had sprung for the good beer because that root ball weighs a ton. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they thrived so much that after four or five years, they had grown so tall um, I would I would cut them down, and then that would be our Christmas tree indoors that year. So I, I got at least two years out of every tree. That's good. I fear that this is one of the climate issues right mm -hmm. now. Um, a lot of people just say blue spruce, but I think you hit the nail on the head when you said Colorado blue spruce. Um, yeah, they like cold winter. <laughs> And uh, one thing that, you know, was really hit home to me when I visited Colorado a couple of years ago to, to give a lecture there, had a great time too, is it's exceedingly dry. So here we, uh, you know, just had, I believe, the warmest summer in, uh, on record. And, and it was rainy as well. So here's a tree that likes cool weather and dry feet. And, you know, it, this is happening all over the globe where species are, are being replaced. And it's a sin because, obviously, it is my favorite holiday tree. I love the color. I love the fragrance. I love the fact that the branches are strong enough to hold heavy ornaments. Um, there's really no downside to it. And, you know, when they get trucked in from Colorado or, or a similar climate, uh, you know, I think they're going to do fine, and they're going to do fine in their native climates. But it may be like some other trees that we're seeing disappear. You know, in some cases, like the ash, it's an invasive insect. Um, yeah. I, I haven't heard of any insects or disease that are attacking spruce trees right now. But I could be wrong. You know, they could be out there. But my first guess would be our climate has changed to their negative side. Um, and they're just one of many types of trees that used to do well in an area like Pennsylvania because we had a real winter and a real summer. And I, off, I remember having to water much more frequently, say 10, 15 years ago, than I have in the past decade. So too much water and not enough cold, it not only can take out a, a blue spruce, but I'm thinking of several other trees that it just makes them open to disease and insect pests, or they just die outright. That, that sounds logical, because it has been really ugly weather lately. And <laughs> I guess the only takeaway we have from this is it might be wise to plant for the future and not plant the way you did in the past. Um, to think about using plants that maybe um, would have been selected for a higher growing zone a few years ago. Because I know in my own garden, I've moved up a zone. That's, that's easy to see. And it looks like it's consistent. So I'm still in a five microclimate here. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, except for the tomatoes. It was so hot this year, they hardly set fruit. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was one issue. Um, anytime the temperature is above 
like 93 to 95 <laughs> degrees. Yeah, the pollen um, burns on the plant. But as soon as the heat wave is over, new flowers will set pollen. So I did pretty good. It wasn't my best tomato year ever. It was my best year for garlic. Um, and I think that's because I built new raised beds. I was worried about all the rain we've been getting. So I built new raised beds that were higher and more full of perlite. And boy, did I get rewarded with the garlic. Good. My peppers did great. Yes, my peppers did very well as well. All right. Well, thanks for the thought. Anybody out there who knows anything more about this, maybe there is a disease going around. Maybe there's a pest that's attacking them. Uh, give us a call. But for now, um, I'm blaming the melting ice caps. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a pretty logical idea. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care. Thanks for calling. You too. Thank you. Bye. Question of the week, which we're calling Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Now, this episode will officially air for the first time on Halloween of an already very scary year, 2020, or as Daniel Defoe didn't exactly phrase it, the year of the plague. And in our last thrilling episode, I promised some scary stories for All Hallows Eve. So let us begin with Insect Fear. Just last week, Linda in Rock, Virginia, emailed us a photo and this missive. I found this on a rose bush in my backyard yesterday. I was picking spent flowers off with my bare hands and thought this was one of the rose hips. But when I picked it up, it was squishy, and it looked like an alien or a WWE wrestler. Turns out that it is a saddleback, a caterpillar that apparently has a vicious sting. Luckily, it didn't sting me. Yikes! Yikes indeed, Linda. As those of you watching on TV can clearly see, this caterpillar looks like something from a nightmare that would kept Rod Serling up at night. But those crazy colors in the false eye on its back serve as a warning to predators that says, I am a worse meal than a mouthful of yellow jackets. And hopefully the same warning to us as well. As the University of Florida notes in a bulletin on the pest, this, quote, slug caterpillar has a voracious appetite for plants, but, quote, is encountered most frequently as a medically significant pest, which can't be good. 
found from New York all the way down to Florida and west to Kansas, Indiana, and Texas, the final larval stage before they morph into a moth is covered with hollow spines that, quote, inject intruders with hemolytic and vesicating venom secreted from nearby glands that cause direct tissue damage. The spines are capable of breaking away from the body, and then they remain embedded in whatever the caterpillar stung. Lovely. Okay, you might want to get the kids out of the room now, cats and kittens. The bulletin continues. The venom can cause a systemic condition called acute uticaria. Severe symptoms may include migraines, gastrointestinal problems, asthma complications, anaphylactic shock, rupturing of red blood cells, and hemorrhaging. The researchers end by suggesting that the best tactic is to avoid the beast. Thereby, gardeners, children, and other living things should know what it looks like. If you are stung, they note, your first job is to pull out the spines as they're still pumping venom. Then apply ice to the area, take a couple of Benadryl, and have somebody else drive you to the nearest emergency room or dock in a box. Oh, and the researchers somewhat gleefully note that this monster is only number two in the stinging caterpillar parade. Even worse may be the reaction should you ever touch a puss caterpillar. Unfortunately, this larval form of the southern flannel moth does not have a fierce and scary aspect. In fact, it looks a lot like a Star Trek Tribble, a soft, cuddly creature that in its final and most deadly phase before becoming a moth could easily pass for a plush toy. The University of Florida bulletin on this creature, they really seem to have an obsession with stinging caterpillars, explains that the name Puss Caterpillar is likely in reference to the caterpillar's resemblance to a cat with its soft fur and tail. Oh, how cute. Not. Found in about the same range as the saddleback, stings from this innocent-looking creature can cause a variety of symptoms, including headache, seizures, muscle pain, and convulsions. It can also shoot its fecal pellets through the air. <laughs> and you thought Asian hornets were scary, right? Time to move on to scary plants. Do not poke this weed. Kathleen in my old hometown of Philadelphia sends us a photo and writes, do you know what this is? I can't seem to find any information on it. Am I accidentally growing blueberries? Once again, the picture is worth a lot of words. So check out our website if you are an audio-only fan of YBYG, or just search the word pokeweed. Anyway, although the berries on this plant are pretty much the same color, blueberries are always round, and pokeweed berries always have a flattened shape. Blueberries are delicious and superfood nutritious, while pokeweed berries and the rest of the plant are poisonous. And I don't know anyone who's ever been lucky enough to have a blueberry plant just show up. But pokeweed is all over the place, thanks to the fact that birds are immune to the toxins, while people, dogs, and livestock are not. Small amounts will make adults violently ill for several days. 
large amounts or even small amounts in small children can be fatal, with death being caused by respiratory paralysis. It's native to North America. Hey, a native plant, it must be good. And the young shoots, never the root, are harvested very early in the spring in some southern regions to make poke salad. Even this use is dangerous, as the greens must be repeatedly boiled and rinsed to make them safe to eat. The New York Times calls it the vegetarian's puffer fish. And yes, these are the same greens referred to in the hit song, Poke Salad Annie, where the gators eat her granny. Poke Salad Annie. The gators got your granny. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Well, that sure was some important information in the you can look, but you better not touch category now, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read this article over at your leisure or your leisure because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week where? At the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to send me a saddleback if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse of emails teeting, teeming, teeting and teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. You'll find all of this contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. And even though he is pure at heart and says his prayers at night, he was created when he was bitten by a wolf, when the wolfbane was in bloom and the moon was full and bright. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director of direction is Javier Diaz. The usual gang of idiots includes Jazzy Jeff Frederick, the esteemed Eric Werner, Zach the Taquisneski, and gentleman John Flynn. Our beloved CEO, Tim Fallon, will be out of contact for the day as he prepares to set a record for acquiring the most M&Ms and Kit Kat bars 
by going door to door. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. If I show up at your door tonight, do not be afraid. Just be prepared to send me off with a plastic pumpkin full of Twizzlers. And I'll see you again next week. Leaves falling all over the place means that it is once again compost making time. I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, we'll answer some frequent questions about making nature's most perfect plant food, plus imperfect answers to your fabulous phone calls. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden. <laughs>